This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You may have heard the news today that Connor McDavid, arguably the greatest hockey player in the world right now, even though he's only 19, 20, whatever he is. You can debate him or Sidney Crosby, but probably that's one and one A. But anyway, signed a contract today that'll pay him $12.5 million a year for the next eight years. Kicks in after next year, so he'll be an oiler now for the next nine years. But $12.5 million sounds like an awful lot of money, right? Well, it is an awful lot of money. There's not one person, I don't think there's one person listening right now that would say $12.5 million. Pooh. I make that in the morning. There's nobody like that, right? I mean, I don't think. If you are out there who has that belief, please be in touch with me. We can use more, but we can always use more sponsors. Ad rates are very reasonable for those who make $12.5 million a year. But what if Connor McDavid was not a hockey player? Bubba O'Neill, our buddy from CHCH, joins us. Sir, how are you today? Boy, the money is just flying all over the place. I mean, it is unbelievable, Scott. It just, I guess the newest thing coming out here, Lionel Messi. Yes. Uh, $33.6 million per year with Barcelona. But you know what? Here's the thing that blows me away about this. Okay, Lionel Messi is, again, you can say Lionel Messi is one of the two, probably with Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the two, you can debate it, well, one of the two best soccer players in the world, which is Absolutely. the world's most popular sport. So... 33 point whatever sounds like an obscene astronomical amount of money, and it is, but you can also look at it and say, okay, but how many shirts does he sell? How many people does he bring in? How much TV revenue? Okay, I get that. He is, though, like Connor McDavid, Bubba, he is one of the two best at his sport in the world. Connor McDavid is going to be making a third every year, roughly, of what Kyle Lowry is going to make for the Raptors this year. Lionel Messi, the best player in soccer and the most popular sport in the world, is going to make the same as Kyle Lowry. That is where things get really screwy for me, is how that turns out. I think the economics are slightly different. Here's the deal, Scott. First of all, the the television contract. I mean... I think it's hard to compare sometimes some of the European sports, uh, you know, Formula One, soccer, uh, cricket, sports like that, to what's going on in North America because the endorsement opportunities are so large in North America. And in some cases, that's why you're seeing a lot of these uh, European athletes uh, sort of extending their brand into North America because the opportunities are more. Basketball is a sport that obviously has... 13 players, I believe, on the roster. I think as many as 14 players on the roster. Really, your starting five are making a a tremendous amount of dough. And with the new television contract that kicked in with Disney, ABC, ESPN, it's massive money that the NBA is pulling in. And the players know it. Hence, they're signing short-term contracts, renegotiating after a year or sometimes two years, to maximize the amount of money that they're 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 that they're getting, so just basic math would tell you when you're only paying 13 guys, or it, as compared to the National Hockey League, when you're paying 23 guys on a roster on a sport that doesn't you know that is very attendance based, because it just doesn't make the same amount of money from television. The players are going to be able to take advantage of more money in basketball than they would in hockey. Well, and in basketball, you need. 
to be a competitive team now, you need two star players. To be a really good team, you need three star players. But if you're one of those two, the team pretty much has to pay for you because you're on the court all the time. And, you know, if the Raptors lose Kyle Lowry, this is where it gets interesting. If the Raptors lose Kyle Lowry, potentially they don't win a playoff game. They may not even make the playoffs. I think they probably would, but they may not even make the playoffs. And you start looking at playoff revenue from hosting playoff games and you say, well, where's the trade-off then? And that's how important one guy can be in basketball, which is more than in the other sports. But I got to think there's a lot of guys, Bubba, now in other sports who are saying, why did I not play basketball? Absolutely. And that that's the economics of that sport. And, I mean, you had, uh, you know, one of the game, arguably one of the, the game's greatest players in Stephen Curry that over the weekend confirmed that he was signing a $201 million extension over five years. You know, we're looking at now, so that puts us now into the $40 million plateau, which I'm going to tell you in three years from now, maybe even two, will become the norm, the norm for superstar players in the NBA. When I hear these numbers, i, I got to be honest with you. I mean, we've been – our shock to this, I think, has been dulled over the years, to be honest, because it's been a – generally, with very few exceptions, it's been a gradual rise. I remember there was a Sports Illustrated. I remember reading years ago with – I think it was Kirby Puckett and Ricky Henderson. That tells you sort of the era. And it was – they were shocked that – the story about the $3 million baseball player. There were like five of them. And – We've gradually had gotten used to players making more and more, but this seems like all of a sudden, with the I mean, the A Rod contract with Texas a number of years ago was one of these, but it seems like all of a sudden it's gone right through the stratosphere, like inexplicably, not with us being ready for it. It just seems like it's gone up so much this off season in all the sports. It's television, and because here's the thing, I mean, a lot of people talk about television and the fact that less people are. Are, are watching television, less people are listening to radio, less are, 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 watch, are reading newspapers. But sports is the one thing on television that people are still watching because nowadays your favorite show, your favorite comedy, movies are all being watched on Netflix. And if, there are, if the, uh, the things on the television that you do like, you, you can PVR them and watch them at your own time. Or there is the on-demand services. You can watch anything on your own time. But sports is PVR-proof. Everyone wants to watch live. So advertisers are still paying TV companies and leagues tremendous amounts of money to still put their products, to advertise their products on live sports. And this will continue until the day of, until TV stops showing sports. Or, or a, a pay-per-view service comes in there. Which so, has to be eventually, right? I mean, it seems like it, with all this money, it has to eventually happen. I, 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 I hope not, because I can't imagine that every hockey game... I mean, and we saw that in the National Hockey League here. Uh, Sportsnet was one of the first to do this. Um, I'm going to say probably a, a decade ago, where Calgary Flames, Edmonton Oilers... And Vancouver Canuck games were televised on that network, but games were also available on pay-per-view. And because those are such regional-based teams, those games actually sold rather well, despite the complaining of the consumer. But it was the only way to watch your favorite, your home team. And it's gone away now because Sportsnet now televises every game pretty much, or TSN. 
But I can see a time where there's going to be a pay-per-view service because that's the only way that a lot of these companies or these TV stations are going to be able to keep up in terms of needing or getting that revenue. It's gotten so ridiculous. And and again, I, I'm let me back up for one second. There are those who say, look, the players are getting a lot, but why should they not get a lot? Why? Because we don't want all the money just to go to the owners. If the players aren't getting it, the money's out there. And so the players are the ones we watch, therefore they should make that money. I'm not arguing that point. I'm just talking about in general. The money in sports has become so ridiculous, seemingly overnight, at least more ridiculous, that when former Raptor Patrick Patterson just signed a deal with the Oklahoma City Thunder yesterday or today for $16.4 million over three years, people are looking going, what a sucker, what a sap, what a loser that guy is that he could only get $16.5 million. That that is a change time when we're looking at sixteen and a half million dollars and thinking he absolutely just cratered and bottomed out. But here's the thing, and and you know for Patrick Patterson that's a borderline starter. Uh, some teams he would start. Even on the Raptors, there were times where he was starter as a as a starting player. But I thought he was always more effective coming off the bench. So he's one of those middle range players. Well, at this point now in this economic uh, lifestyle of the NBA. That $16 million is representative of exactly who he is right now. There's the haves and the have-nots. Or the middle. <laughs> but is there a middle anymore? I see. I don't see there's too much middle. It's you either make the huge, huge, huge money or you're going to make... Everybody in the league is going to make 4 or $5 million. That's just where it's going to stand. But you're going to make the 4 or $5 million, which in our world would be... Man, we're hitting the lottery. But in their world is bottom of the barrel, or you're going to make the twenty, thirty, forty million dollars. But, but this is what I'm saying, Scott. I'm saying that sixteen million dollars is the low end. Yes, that's yes. Go- that's going to represent the new low end for you know for guys that are six man players or guys coming off the bench that are that are you know good players. Because I, I can remember in the NBA again, like I said, thirteen players, I believe thirteen or fourteen players is what you carry on a roster. Maybe as much as fifteen. But quite honestly, coaches these days are only going three, four, maybe if a game's blown out, a blowout, five deep. So you're only looking at about eight to ten players that are actually seeing floor time. So those guys, like a Patrick Patterson, he falls in that category. And to me, that 15 to 16, 17 million dollar range will represent where those guys are going to get paid. Do you think in the NBA that when guys are trash talking, they look at the guy, man, you, you're a chump. You only make five million a year. <laughs> Like I, I bet you that has been said. Of course, there. Of course, that's been said. No doubt. If you're a high, a high money earner, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, and it's, and you're talking about someone that's not on your team. That can be easily used as as as, as a conversation fodder. <laughs> How? What world is it we live in when you can be mocked for only making five million a year? <laughs> That's 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 stunning. I mean, it really is stunning. It is stunning. It's, it is stunning. But because it's know. happened so fast. It really has. Like again, the the three million dollar baseball player was an early '90s phenomenon, and so we're talking about basically twenty twenty five years. We've gone from three million being unbelievable amounts of money to now forty million. And Bryce Harper, they're talking about he may hit the fifty million a year salary in a year when he becomes sure. a free agent. Sure, sure. I, I, I can't, again, but I mean, do the math. The money's available, Scott. I mean, at places like Washington where he plays, the New York Yankees, I mean, these are teams that, one, have their own television station, so they're generating their own money. 
meaning the Yes Network for the Yankees. Um, these are stadiums that are, you know, holding in excess of 40 to maybe even 50,000 people. And you have 82 home games to draw funds from in, in baseball. So the money's there. Because people are still going to the ball game. Attendance is up, even on bad teams like the Blue Jays. Well, and then you get the flip side, okay? So the Leafs signed Patrick Marlowe, who's doing, I mean, again, big, in NHL terms, a big deal. Six million, six-something million. In the NBA, he'd be mocked for that. In the NBA, in the NHL, he's being celebrated for at 38 being able to pull off a deal like that. And yet, as was pointed out by a number of people this week, Patrick Marlowe, for the next three years, will roughly make the entire salary of the CFL. <laughs> That's not a fair fight, though. <laughs> and, and it's not, no, because the, the truth is, no, fair. it's not. He, he will not. The, the, it's, it's a per team because it's about four and a half or five million per team. But he's, it, these are, these are, these are different fights. But boy, oh boy, it just talks about, other than the CFL, how much money there is in the game. And here's the part about it, Bubba, that I that really always strikes me as everyone says, well, as I said before, well, the money's there, so we don't want just the owners to get richer and richer and richer off the players. So the players have to get the money. Here's what I've never figured out. Why could everybody not just take a bit of a breath and say, you know what? So that we have people who can actually come to the games. Let's take everything, let's dial everything back. Your salary, my salary, owner's percentages, let's dial everything back by 25% to make tickets more affordable. That'll never happen. Never. I mean, I'm, I know I'm dreaming. But the money is there, so why not just pull it back a bit? It just, it seems so incredibly excessive right now. Well, as humans, I mean, we're, oh, we're, naturally, no. we're naturally greedy, and, I, and that'll never change, Scott. I mean, that's just oh, the Of way course it goes. not. No, no. And, and no. I know, I'm not actually yeah. suggesting no, someone's no, going to do I, I hear, that. I hear you, yeah, because, you know, but you know what, that, hey, you're not you're you're not speaking garbage here because there are people I've I've talked to you know over the years that say they've they've been turned off sports they don't watch sports anymore because of the amount of monies that you know individual athletes and teams are making. Well, I've and, never taken my kid, and I wish I could. I've never taken my kid to a Maple Leaf game in Toronto, and it's not because he wouldn't want to go, or my wife, who's a Leaf fan, it's not that they wouldn't want to go. I can't justify paying basically making it a thousand dollar night for a pair of good seats. I can't justify that for a hockey game. And so, whereas, you know, us, our generation, the generation before us talks about how they used to go to Maple Leaf games with their dads or grandparents or whatever. My kid will not have that experience. Now that's not the end of the world, but it would be really nice if he could do that. Sure. But but, but he won't. But they don't care. No, oh no, they don't care. They got to pay the salary. And unfortunately... The way it goes nowadays, if you're if you're not going to buy that seat, someone else will. Oh, no kidding. But again, go back. We have been to Blue Jay games. We've been to other games, and those are great memories. I wish we could do that, but I just, as I say, too many other things going on, and I think this is probably the case with many people listening. How do I justify that kind of money for a hockey game? And you can't. But, but you've got Austin Matthews you're going to have to pay. and Especially when it's available for free on your television. For now. For now. For now. You know, in probably, you know, 18 different angles with replays and commentary. For now. The time will come, though, and we'll even be paying for that, I'm guessing. And that, you know what, this is for another discussion for another day. We can pick this up. But I do wonder when that day comes, when pay-per-view becomes the norm. And I really do believe somehow, in some way it's going to, what the effect on sports fandom will be and how much that will cut into 
whether people continue to be sports fans. I think that sports, honestly, while we can sort of chuckle in an obscene way about these contracts, I think we're starting to walk on a pretty dicey line here for a lot of sports that it's getting to the point where needing to find that amount of money is going to create some situations that may not be healthy for sports long-term. Long-term, there's every reason to believe that, Scott, but I don't think people are looking that far away right now. Clearly I not. Think they're, they're enjoying the good times, and as, 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 as players would tell you, you go get paid. <laughs> While you're out there, you go get paid, especially when you're talking about some sports like the National Football League, where for the most part, unless you're Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, or I mean, not Peyton's retired, but guys like that, contracts are not guaranteed. So while it's time for while you're playing and while you're excelling, you go get paid. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, always love having you on, sir. Thanks for doing Never even got around to the new commissioner of the CFL. That'll be the next time, maybe. Well, that, that, that's an ongoing issue. That, <laughs> that, 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 that's worth probably more than our 20 minutes here. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a special edition, the all-night episode. <laughs> Bubba, thanks. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, we know, it, it, it goes without saying, it's an accepted fact of life because we've heard it as long as we've lived, that sex sells. If you want to sell a product, if you want to get attention, sex something up, put a sexy lady on the hood of your car, have some really good-looking guy with his shirt off, sipping a beer, whatever. You're going to get people's attention, and it's going to get people to watch whatever you're... You're not going to change the channel, and ultimately they're going to buy your product because... Well, because, right? This is the theory. This is what we have believed, uh, many people have believed, for decades, maybe longer than that. Well, a new study says, maybe not quite exactly. Maybe not. Dr. John Wirtz is with the University of Illinois. He's an an advertising professor, University of Illinois, and he's the lead author of this study. He joins me now. Dr. Wirtz, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, As I said off the top, we people from... I don't know, the dawn of time, I guess, since advertising really began, have assumed or either believed or assumed that sex sells. And we know this because they keep doing it over and over. It's never gone away. There's always been sexiness or titillation, whatever word you want to use in advertising. Um, You've done this study and now you're telling us that perhaps all of these people, all these bright people might have been wrong? I think, yeah, I think the way that I would look at it is, if I can just give an example there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies that show that people who exercise are less likely to have heart attacks. They're more likely to have good, positive health outcomes. And so on average, we would say exercise is a good thing. So when we take that to our study and look at sex and sexual appeals in ads, you might think or we would expect that, oh, on average, it's a good thing. They're going to help people. It's going to change people's purchase intention, their desire to, to buy something, their willingness. And what we found is when we um, aggregated across for the purchase intention, we had um, 54 studies that gave data. The On average, the effect was zero, literally was zero. And so what we aren't saying is that no ad with a sexual appeal would ever work. But what we are saying is our results found that on average, when you put them together, it's kind of a coin flip on whether uh, it works or doesn't work. 
Well, we, I mean, again, you, you're obviously you're correct. Um, we know it's worked with certain things in the past. One that comes to mind, maybe for me and maybe for others as well, was boy, I may be dating myself here. How long ago was it that Brooke Shields said nothing comes between me and my Calvins, which was you know maybe one of the more famous ones and that that it seemed worked because she actually mentioned the product right there so you remembered what the product was she was selling because it was burned into your brain but they're not all that clear yeah and again what we found that was somewhat surprising was that people remembered the ads that they had seen that had sexual appeals but actually that effect didn't extend to brands and products. So often people actually remember seeing an ad with a sexual appeal and they, they say, oh, I, I saw that ad and it had Brooke Shields in it, but I, I, she was wearing something, but I'm not sure what it was. Um, so for, um, for the memory of the, the ad itself, it worked out great. But for, again, the brands and products, we found that that, that effect didn't extend. So um, once again, I think it kind of challenges conventional wisdom about the effectiveness of sexual appeals and, and what they actually do. So it's not necessarily that people are not watching. They may still be watching the commercial. If you sex it up, they may stick around to watch it because they like what they're seeing. It's just that it won't necessarily make a, a brain connection later on with the product that's actually being sold. That's 100% right. That's exactly it. People definitely are drawn. They're attracted to sex, sexual appeals, nudity, partial nudity. There's no doubt about that. What the extension to brands, products, purchase intention, that's where we didn't see the effect. That's where we saw these effects of being basically zero averaged across, um, again, a a large group of studies. So... um, People pay attention to sex, no doubt. But if you're an advertiser, does it really help if I can't remember what, your, what the brand is? Oh, I saw this ad, but I really liked it. I liked the woman who was in the ad. I don't have any idea what it was. It was some beer or something like that. Now, this has just come out, so I don't know if you've had much of a feedback yet from anybody, but do you get the sense that advertising companies are going to believe this study? Because it seems as though it's been going on for so long, somewhere in the mindset of advertisers, at least some of them, there must still be a belief that this works. Do you think they're going to buy what you're selling? Pardon the pun. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. There's always a tension between people who are, who who study advertising as a, um, as a research pursuit and people who practice advertising and work in ad agencies. So, um, I would doubt if people suddenly, advertisers suddenly say, oh, look what Word says, so we're going to stop doing ads like that. Um, but hopefully, at least for us, people will have pause, they'll, they'll think, and um, you know, the, the way that I describe it, have tried to describe the, the pattern of results is just like sex in our own lives, it's complicated. It's not nearly as straightforward as we might think. Oh, yes, if you have a sex appeal, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen in line. Well, it's not exactly like that. What I don't understand about this, though, is, well, there's a lot of things I don't understand about this, but surely advertising companies, or companies, pardon me, when they hire an advertising company to make a commercial for them, 
they are doing some sort of market research or statistical analysis to see whether my product's sales are going up at the time this new commercial goes out on the air. And yeah, if, there's, there, I'm sorry. No, no. And, and so wouldn't this show, if it's not working, would it not show, hey, this is not working? Maybe they don't take it to the broader sense that we're missing the idea. Maybe it's just a bad commercial they're saying. But w- would that would that not be an obvious thing that these companies would have done? I'm, uh, there's no doubt that um, people who work in ad agencies, people who work uh, for marketing companies are doing um, research related to what people are buying and, what, and the type of things that uh, the response that they have to ads. At the same time, one of the things that we talk about in the article is it really depends on what you measure. So some advertisers, some ad agencies will talk about memory. What type of ad memory do people remember ads? Definitely, they remember them. And so they can take that to their client and say, well, look, people are are remembering your ad. Or one of the other findings that was kind of, this one was, I think, kind of intuitive, what you would expect. We found that males um, liked ads with sexual appeals uh, much more than females. And so I think ad agencies sometimes can go to their clients and say, well, look, you know, your demographic is males, and, and look how much they like your ad. Look how much they're sharing your ad. What we didn't find was the, the move from liking the ad over to the, to the purchase intention. So, again, I'm not trying to throw stones at the ad agencies or, or marketing uh, companies. I just am reporting the results that we of found. Course. And um, I, I, I was surprised. But I'll give you an example. I don't I won't say the, the brand or the, the product, uh, the company, but there's a, um, a fast food company that made a very public break from a long history of sexual appeals uh, just at the last Super Bowl. And they did that. That was driven by the, the outgoing CEO who said, we feel like our product really needs to be front and center. And, and the ad agency originally pushed back on that and said, no, this is a really good campaign and people like it and people talk about it. Um, and the company said, you know, we want you to do a different ad. So, I, again, I do think that some companies, some ad agencies focus on what things they want to talk about rather than maybe necessarily, um, you know, sales. That's always a big um, point of uh tension in the ad agency world or, um, you know, what do we do? Do we do things that people like or do we do things that move product? But if I'm the owner of a major company or not even a major, if I'm an owner of a company period and I go to an advertising agency to do a commercial for me, my purpose, I would think, is to sell my product where it sounds like what's happening here is the ad agencies, at least some of them are coming back and saying, look at all these mentions your ad got. The ad agency, to my mind then, has sold itself and its work, not the product. They're supposed to be, you're paying them to sell the product, not their own artistic vision. Yeah, and that is, um, again, I'm, I'm not trying to get into a big fight with ad agencies or the, the ad industry, but that is uh, that happens. That definitively happens. Huh. You get creativity for creativity's sake. You get um, the metrics that uh, are delivered to the um, to the clients are things like 
what people share online, what people are talking about. And, and those things are can be important. It also depends, um, I think, you know, on your product. Is it a new product? Are we trying to um, get people just interested in our product? Or are we looking at some longer-term, um, you know, some type of uh, brand that's mature and that's been uh, in the, the, um, on, on the market for a longer period of time? Dr. Wurtz, do you think you've studied this a lot? Do you, and not just this, but I mean advertising in general, do you believe that part of the reason for this, though, strikes me, and I'm not an advertiser, but if I was absent a great idea, sex is always an easy one you can always fall back on that is going to get people's eyeballs, whether it moves product or not. Is this, in a lot of cases, is this laziness? I, again, I, I can't really speak to the motiv- motivations of um, advertisers. What I can tell you is that people pay attention to ads with sexual appeals, and that's something that um, that everybody understands, right? You could have a humor appeal that might fall flat. You might have something that people don't really understand, or you, you make a joke and it actually is that people take it the wrong way. Mm. Sexual appeals are very easy to understand. They're very visceral. And so I do think that sometimes ad agencies... Uh, rely on them because they're they are easy and 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 they do get attention. You you said off the top that it was a fifty fifty whether or not it might work or whether or not it might help. Is there any evidence that it might have the opposite effect? That if you sex up a commercial again with the thought sex sells, is there any suggestion that it might actually hurt your product? So there's ju- there's a little suggestive evidence. So what we did was we worked with published studies, and so we could only use the data that were available to us. So there, there is some suggestive evidence that actually male models, there's a negative effect. Male there models, okay. A, there, was a, there was a small, significant negative effect for ads that just had a male or male models only. And so it's possible that uh, there's again, kind of more to the story. Our goal is to go back and, and to try to, you know, to, to go back to what I said earlier, it's kind of complicated to try to unpackage the puzzle a little bit more. So, um, you know, there's some in, indication that, that um, maybe what's happening there. There's also some suggestive evidence that that more explicit nudity is actually viewed more negatively but um, we didn't have enough data to, to, to really suss that out. Uh, just got a minute or two left here, but just I should have asked this right off the top, but for the sake of the study, where is sort of the baseline for what is categorized as sexual for the purpose of a study, for, for a person, purpose of commercial? I mean, if it's explicitly or very obviously, that's clear. But what would be the the least sort of the lowest end that would still be counted in this study as being a sexual in piece of a commercial? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. We used a, a pretty broad definition of sexual appeal that included partial nudity, it included sexual innuendo, and it included kind of sexually suggestive behaviors where um, people are uh, looking like they're going to have some kind of sexual encounter. You know, sometimes you see in an ad where a man and a woman might be looking at each other in a way that suggests they're going to have some kind of um, 
interaction, sexual interaction. So we included a pretty broad measure. We did look a, separate out nudity, and we didn't really find any difference between nudity and sexual innuendo and um, and uh, even uh, like double entendre, like where you see a, um, an ad and there's a phrase or a word or a set of words that suggests a sexual um, uh, meaning that um, is not sexually explicit in the sense of nudity. Just before I let you go, um, I looked up today before we came on here, uh, a number of websites that have the most memorable and recognizable TV commercials of all times. And th- I mean, there's lots that people can put on this list, but the ones that were at the top of almost every list, where's the beef from Wendy's? Uh, people remember the was up from Budweiser, uh, the Geico caveman, uh, the frosted flakes. They're great. The Tony, the tiger, um, Mikey likes it. The life cereal energizer bunny. I fallen and I can't get up the life call lady. Um, this is your brain on drugs, the one that was a public service announcement, I think. And of course, the Coca-Cola, I'd like to teach the world to sing. But I couldn't help, knowing you were coming on, I couldn't help but notice in that entire list, not one bikini-clad woman, not one greased-up, muscle-bound, shirtless guy. There was no sexual content in any of the commercials that were listed broadly as the most memorable ones ever. That's got to say something. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. When I was talking about this to, when I was making a presentation about this study, um, I wanted to use an example. And so I used the example of the Swedish um, bathing suit um, team, the Swedish bikini bathing suit team. There was a, um, a series of studies back in the 80s. And I could not, for the life of me, that's all I could remember about it. So I had to Google and find out what that was to connect the product and I mean I kind of thought it was a beer commercial and you know again I think the really creative the really successful ad campaigns are not only memorable but they connect to the product there's not one person who doesn't know Tony the Tiger they're great it's Frosted Flakes Dr. John Wirtz a really fascinating study really appreciate the time today thanks for doing this my pleasure that is um, that is antithetical to what most people think about advertising. And and look, I'm I'm not an advertiser. I've never done an ad. I don't think I've ever done an ad. No, I've never done an ad. Sorry, I had to think back if I've ever, even like way, way back, maybe before I was working in newspapers, I've ever worked, no, I've never done an ad. So I've got nothing to do with the advertising world, but what strikes me as really interesting about this is two things. One, if you're a company that hires a company to build an ad for you, surely you want to find some market research that shows that commercial or that advertising campaign is having an impact. Somehow, that doesn't seem to have happened. If all these sexed up ads are, or most of them are having no impact, how do they keep putting them out? So something is, there's, there's a chasm there somewhere. There's a chasm there somewhere. And the second thing is, I truly believe that it must just be for a lot of, for a lot, not all, for a lot of advertising companies that if you just are without an idea, if you need something easy, a fallback position, just have a girl in a bikini, do something sexy. And you know what? People will watch. People won't turn the channel. doesn't mean it's going to move any product. Again, it's a lazy, seems to be anyway, most of the time, a really lazy way of doing it. But yeah, we can throw, we can give you some girls in bikini. Sure. 
Will they watch? Yeah, they'll watch. Do they know what the product is? Nah, we're not really sure. But look, they watched. They social mediated it. They sent it out. They tweeted a link to it. Yeah, but did they buy our product? Who cares? They were familiar with the commercial. Well, that seems to me to be very much missing the point, doesn't it? We're not being prudish here. It's just really interesting that this suggests that sexing up a commercial doesn't actually mean more sales. I find that very interesting because it's so antithetical to what we've believed for so long. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I think a lot of people would love it if they could choose anything to do in their life. I mean, money, no object, whether there are jobs, no object. They could pick one thing they want to do. There are a lot of people who would say, you know what I want to do? I want to work in golf. Now, I grant you. Many of those people are imagining playing on the PGA Tour, winning millions of dollars and traveling in luxury and being able to play Augusta National in those places. That's part. But assuming that most of us can't do that, well, there's another option. You can still be in golf, and that opportunity is, it sounds anyway, becoming a little bit closer because starting very soon, McMaster University is going to be offering a course in golf management. You can go to McMaster to study golf. I mean, there are people who never dreamed the day would come. They could study golf at university, and it's going to be right here. Grant Fraser is the founder of Golf Management Institute of Canada, which is behind this. He joins me now. Grant, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Uh, this is true, though. Everybody, everybody wants to work in golf, right? They all figure, I'm going to work in golf, I'm going to do a few hours of work, and then go out in the course and play it. It's the dream utopian job, isn't it? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Having worked in the golf for quite a while, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't quite say that. But, but that's the close. picture, if nothing else, for a lot of people. That would be the picture. If you work at a course, if you somehow work in the in the world of golf, it's 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 work, but it's also fun. Well, it is, and if you if you know if you have if you have a passion for the game and you like to play, you know, being able to work at uh, at a golf a golf course or in in a golf business. And being able to play as well is uh, it's a it's a it's it's a pretty pretty good way to go. This this program that is being launched here it's 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 a diploma in golf management. What, what is the difference between golf management and management? I mean, I, there have to be some differences besides just that the the focus is exclusively on golf. What would be the differences? Well, the the actual program it's it's called the business of golf and resort management. So there's a resort piece to this as well because. You know, for 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 your listeners that travel, uh, re- resort and golf uh, go hand in hand. So there's a resort component to the program as well. Um, something that you should be aware of is uh, also is that it's entirely online, offered through McMaster's Center for Continuing Education. So it's all done online. The, the classes are are taught um, in the evenings from seven to nine p.m. Eastern time. And the program is comprised of, of 10 online courses specific to the business of golf. So if you're looking to improve your game, you're, you're, this, isn't pro, this isn't the program for you. I, I hate, I'm sorry, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but if you're looking to take your handicap from 15 to 6 or whatever, this, is not the, this probably isn't the right place to go. But if you're looking to learn about the business of golf, how to run a golf operation, a, a golf enterprise, uh, the program was designed to provide someone with the skills that they would need, you know, to uh, to have a better understanding of, of turf, of club governance, of, of marketing, of finance, how to run uh, a golf business like you would any business for that matter. 
is there, I mean, is there a huge amount of demand for this right now that you hear about? Well, there are there are college programs, and I'm I'm associated uh, proudly associated with one of them. That's uh, Niagara College. They've got a golf management program, uh, and there are other programs as well in Ontario. But this is the only this is the only university program that exists. And you know, McMaster being McMaster, I mean, this is this is very exciting. I think for the golf industry to be able to uh, steer steer staff or career changers looking to get into golf and and get a a diploma from one of Canada's best universities, McMaster University. So this is a, a great opportunity. You know, the golf industry is, is certainly thrilled, and it's a, it's a great opportunity for McMaster too because they're it now. That they're the only they're the only university in Canada, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna say I might even expand that by saying in in North America that offers this this specific program in golf and resort management. And the fact that it's online then um, doesn't restrict you to people living around here. So, do you have any sense yet of how widespread your your audience is going to be? Well, I think I, uh, historically most of the students um, that we've had in the past uh, have been from Canada. But I would say twenty percent of students who have taken courses in the past through the Golf Management Institute of Canada have been international students. So, I think once the word is out internationally. Uh, that McMaster's now in uh, in the game. Uh, I think this. I think sky's the limit. I think you're going to have. I think you. And because it's online, you can offer courses anywhere in the world. So we all, We've already. Uh, you know, we've had conversations with with uh, with people in India, and I, I think we're just hmm. we're just getting we're just getting started. Who is the audience, though? And I don't mean internationally. I mean, is this is this a kind of line of work or a thing you're going to get into directly out of high school, or generally, or more often, are you finding these are people who have done university already and now want to specialize in this? Who who's going to sign up for this? Well, I I, two, I think there are two audiences. Uh, the the adult learner audience is is the primary target audience, and so by that you've got different categories of adult learners. You have career changers, so you know uh, maybe it's uh, a retired firefighter who's looking to make a career change, loves golf, and you know wants to learn about the business of golf. Uh, so we have, I, I anticipate there being um, lots of career changers, retirees, um, and then also people in the golf industry already who are looking to advance, uh, learn, learn, or or, or uh, yeah, learn some new skills or upgrade the skill set that they have. So that they can they can uh, progress up the food chain. So let me give you an example. So a club manager, for example, if there's a, a food and beverage manager who's been in that position for a you know a few years, is looking to either become the club manager or the the GM the GM or you know the the COO of of a private club. Uh, if they have a college diploma, or university degree, some kind of an academic credential already, and add to it with this diploma from McMaster, they're they're well on their way. But it's 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 an adult learner that I think is the primary target audience for this program. And so when when they get done, this is the, obviously the big question, especially now. Are, are there jobs out there in, in uh, this business? Are there a lot of positions open? Well, you know that's a great question, and there's no que- there, I'm not going to dispute the fact the golf industry has changed. You know, if you go back 10, 12 years, we were opening up five, six, seven, maybe even more golf courses every year in Ontario. So that's that that that. That uh, that uh, build has stopped, um, but people don't. I don't know if people realize this or not, but there are, there are about twenty five between. I'm going to say between twenty two and twenty five hundred golf facilities in the country. Over eight hundred in Ontario alone. 
It's a $13 billion industry in Canada with over you know, 300,000 jobs directly, indirectly related to the industry. So it's an industry. It is. It's not just, it's not, uh, it's not a pastime. It's not a hobby. It's a, it's a legitimate business run. Uh, golf courses are run by small business owners, entrepreneurs who have to have the business skills to, to run their business. And that's, that's the purpose of this program to do exactly that. Is there a lot of turnover though? Because I mean, again, if you, if you take this and you, you put in, cause it sounds like it's a, it's an involved course to take this. It's not just one night, you know, doing a one course you want to get something out of it. Is there an opportunity? Do you find that does the business, even with all those places, does it turn over? Um, or do people stay in these places for you? I mean, if you're the head of the head pro at a golf course, or if you're running a, the general manager, generally do they stay there for 25 30 years or is it a, a few years and out well i know i know some gms i know some head professionals i won't name any a particular club or a particular individual who have been in their role for over 20 years so it it's it's a career if if you uh if you work hard and you have a passion for the game you love the game you love you love everything about golf. You know, if you immerse, if you immerse yourself uh, in front of the television, watching the Golf Channel, and can't get enough of Golf Digest, then working in uh, working in the golf business is something that may be for you. Uh, that I mean that's how I started. I started out working at uh, golf courses in Toronto as a caddy, and then throughout high school, and I just had a passion for the game. Was never really any good at it, but just loved it. Loved being outdoors on a night like tonight. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to uh, to make a career of it. So, you know, I, I say that to anybody. If you if you have a love for the game and you're interested in the business of golf, like none of these programs existed when uh, when I was uh, going to school or when I was in my 20s and 30s. So now, uh, programs like this do exist, and they're and they're taught by industry experts. So the the, the faculty that's going to be involved in the program at McMaster, these are golf. These are seasoned golf veterans, so they they've lived and breathed the stuff that they're going to teach our students. Now, these are not what we're talking about here for this course. This is not a groundskeeper. That may be part of it, but it's not a groundskeeping or a head nope. greenskeeper course per se. No. Nope, so the person who takes this, let's say you your ultimate dream then is to be the general manager to run a golf course. Yep. Uh, at the risk of sounding entirely insulting, which is not my purpose at all, what you're going to have a greenskeeper and a groundskeeper. You're going to have other people. What does someone who runs a golf course actually do? Well, uh, the best general managers uh, that I know are they they have an appreciation of what the superintendent does. They have an appreciation of what's going on in the shop and how to serve their members, their guests. So uh, one of the course, one of the courses in the program is, um, involves turf management and golf course design. So if you have, let's say you have an 18 hole golf course and you're thinking of expanding and adding nine holes and you're in charge, you, you should probably have an idea about different types of grasses and uh, irrigation systems and all of that, which would be taught in this program. So if you're going to lead the show and you're going to have a superintendent reporting to you or a, a director of golf reporting to you, you better understand what, what, what it is they do. And uh, the, this, this program is, 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 is broad in that respect uh, because all of the, the different aspects of running a golf operation are covered. Just before I let you go, does all that change or is all that impacted by the level of the course? And when I say level, that may not be the right word, but the clientele. If you are in a very exclusive, very big 
annual fee place with a wealthier clientele, is your job vastly different from if you're at a public course? Uh, you know, there are, there are different requirements, certainly running a private club compared to a, a public facility, no question. But, you know, you think about some of the, the big public facilities in, in the GTA. So, you know, Angus Glen, Lionhead, Glen Abbey. Uh, the skill set that the, the people there that, that manage those properties, not a whole lot different than some of the, the things and the issues that, uh, you know, the, the managers face at, at private clubs in the GTA. It is, um, it's an interesting one, I say, because, I mean, look, there's I could talk to 500 people of 500 different courses at McMaster, but somehow... The idea of working in the golf industry is, as I say, is the dream for a lot of people. It just sounds like it's what a lot of people would want to do. Being involved with the game they love would be just a lovely, lovely way to spend your life. I, I, I'm assuming that it really is as much fun when you get into it as <laughs> as the dream is. I'm not sure, but uh, let's hope so for the sake of those signing up. Uh, listen, Grant, really uh, great talking to you tonight. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can uh, You can read. More about this. Gary McKay had a piece in The Spectator. I think it's probably, I'm sure it's still online at thespec.com if you're interested in this. But again, I, I it's one thing to to sign up for any number of courses, but how many people just that you know love to golf and say, wait, I can work in this industry? I can I can be a golfer? I'm, well, not a golfer per se. I can work in the golf business and maybe play some golf. Yeah, that, that's now a university course. There you go. Who knew? The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs>